Welcome to Nature Bets Blast on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This June 1st, 2021 edition, episode 151 of Nature Bats Last, come to you live from Rakina Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and also from Southern Vermont in the United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm again joined today by my co-host, Professor Guy McPherson. Today's show includes a conversation with Dr. Andrew Chris. Guy, will you do the honors, please? Thank you, Kevin. We're pleased to have Dr. Chris join the show today. Dr. Andrew Christ is a postdoctoral fellow at the Gund Institute for Environment, and he also has an academic home in the Department of Geology at the University of Vermont. Dr. Christ is a geologist who studies how glacier sculpted landscapes in response to climate changes in the past as a way to understand the consequences of anthropogenic climate change now and in the near future. He studies ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica and has traveled to both locations repeatedly for field research. He holds a PhD in earth science from Boston University and a Bachelor of Arts in Geosciences from Hamil- Hamilton College. Dr. Christ, welcome to Nick Trebat's Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No problem. We'll be taking your toll-free calls today. Please call us with your questions and comments after we spend a bit of time with our guest. We are most easily reached with a toll-free telephone call to 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. Kevin, will you start us off? I will indeed. Uh, uh, Nice to have you on the show, uh, Andrew. During your PhD studies at the University of uh, Vermont, you studied cosmogenic nuclide geochemistry. What on earth is that? <laughs> yeah, so that, that is a mouthful of a scientific term. But uh, the basic premise of what that is are special little molecules that only form in rocks and sediment at Earth's surface. When they're exposed to radiation that's coming from around the universe and through Earth's magnetic field and then uh, striking our surface and it changes the nuclear chemistry of minerals like quartz. And we can use those molecules that form by that interaction to tell us things about what's going on on their surface. So, for example, what I work with is um, 
understanding when glaciers come and go. So if a glacier grows and overrides over a landscape, those molecules are no longer produced because they're no longer exposed. But then if the glacier melts away and retreats, those sediments will be exposed again. And we can use that as a way to determine the time when uh, rocks or sediment were last exposed on the landscape. And we can do other things like figure out how quickly um, things are eroding or how not quickly things are eroding. And all that information can be really useful uh, to figure out past changes in uh, Earth's climate that changes what's going on on Earth's surface. Is there... Is there a signature from anthropogenic ionizing radiation overlaying and affecting that in any way, shape, or form? Uh, so, no, that, um, you know, that's a good question because, uh, I mean, I, I assume you're kind of like talking about um, from like nuclear testing or any any sort of that. Yes, and, and also from power stations. Well, yeah, to answer your question, the, the method that I use is not affected by that. Um, it's radiation, more specifically, like high-energy neutrons that are created by the uh, explosions in supernovae that then make it all the way through uh, the universe, through our galaxy, and then into our solar system and bombard the Earth. And most of them are deflected away by by Earth's magnetic field, but um, some make it down to the surface. So the, the radiation released from nuclear testing doesn't actually affect that. Um, it affects other things that geoscientists use to understand what's going on um, in Earth's past um, with things like radiocarbon dating, but um, not with cosmogenic nuclides that um, we've been talking about. Dr. Chris, thanks again for joining us today. I would like to start off with a couple of questions about your multiple trips to Antarctica and Greenland. These have got to be logistically among the two most challenging places to conduct field research. So can you talk about, from a logistical standpoint, the, the challenges you face in these brutally difficult conditions that are present there? And also, most people don't know that Antarctica is a desert. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So logistically, um, it's kind of, it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure for researchers in Antarctica. I actually haven't been to Greenland. I've only been to uh, Antarctica. But um, in Antarctica, the United States National Science Foundation, which is a, a federally funded agency, that gives out funding to scientists in many different disciplines of science. They have an entire um, program for polar science, so either in the Arctic or in the Antarctic. And in the Antarctic, um, they have really good logistics for organizing field campaigns. So, you know, back in the back a century ago, when it was like going to the moon, going to Antarctica, um, there wasn't a lot of logistical planning. But um, sort of a weird twist of history is that uh, the U.S. military during the height of the Cold War figured out how to operate in Antarctica and the Arctic really well. And so a lot of the um, 
logistics that they use now to go to Antarctica are kind of uh, outgrowths from that. And the way that you get to Antarctica is you can go a couple of ways. If you're doing ocean science, you go on an icebreaker vessel with a reinforced hull that can crush through sea ice. And I've done that before, and um, that's really well organized because you have to coordinate um, around 40 different scientists and crew members, like 40 other crew members. Um, and so there's a lot of work that goes into that. Um, but I was really young when I did that, and so I wasn't um, as involved in the logistics. Now, the other way that you can go to Antarctica is um, through the U.S. National Science Foundation is um, by plane. And you get on a Air National Guard uh, C-130 or C-17 jet, and they, you fly from Christchurch, New Zealand, down to McMurdo Station, which is directly south of New Zealand um, on Antarctica. And that's about a five to eight hour flight um, if you're not sent back to New Zealand because the weather's no good. But uh, yeah, you land in this military jet or cargo plane on the frozen sea ice and you go to McMurdo Station where it's about a thousand people in the summer and it's completely dedicated to making science happen. Um, and there's a lot of support staff who help you with the logistics of doing your science on different scaled projects. So when I would go to Antarctica, I went to these more um, uh, bare bone uh, tent sites where we would gather all of our camping gear and food and scientific equipment for uh, up to about eight weeks. And we'd fly in a helicopter um, about an hour, an hour and a half away from McMurdo and they'd drop us off and we'd set up camp. And so the planning of logistics for that is where it gets more difficult um, as a scientist because you know it's not like when you go to a lab and you know if you're hungry, you just go across the street to get a sandwich or something. You have to think about all the food that you need to survive on and coordinate with the other people in your field team about, um, you know, who's going to cook tonight, um, who is going to develop, like, the plan for the day of what science you're going to do, um, how are you going to coordinate resupplies from helicopters and checking in with the um, – the operations center at McMurdo to make sure that everybody's safe. So yeah, there is quite a bit of um, operational and logistical um, difficulty, um, but it really is amazing how smoothly it runs um, through all this help from the Science Foundation. You know, a couple of things. One, you pointed out that you were young then. Hmm. At least two people involved in this conversation would argue that you're pretty young right now. <laughs> and yeah. I'm surprised you haven't been to Greenland. I actually came across your work when I read a paper in the March 30th, 2021 issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that was about Greenland, a multi-million year record of Greenland vegetation and glacial history preserved in sediment beneath 1.4 kilometers of ice at Camp Century. That's the name of that paper. You're the lead author, and you're joined by 17 other scholars in this exceptional scholastic work. So it sounds like that was really exciting, and it must have been really anxiety-producing the first time you went to Antarctica. You know, when you're 
when it's your first time doing something and the other people have done it 20 times before, at least for me, that produces a lot of anxiety. I'm worried I'm going to be the one who trips over, kicks over the food or whatever. So two pretty different experiences. Can you talk about being the new guy on the block, the block of ice <laughs> known as Antarctica? And also, can you talk about the excitement you experienced from that research on Greenland? Sure, absolutely, yeah. It, yeah, it's funny you bring up being the new guy in in some sort of project because it, it, it you know, it is it is intimidating, especially in in going to a place that is just physically uncomfortable most of the time, um, whether that means just being cold or the incessant wind that just gets on your nerves, um, and just you know being isolated for a long amount of time with a group of people that you think you know until you've, you know, here week five in with them in a camp in a tent. <laughs> you really get to know people. Um, and most of the time it, it works out fine. Um, you know, people have their days. Not every day is a good day, but um, by the end of it, everyone's pretty, you know, understands each other and what, you know, what works in those small group dynamics. So it's interesting, like, you know, you pick up on certain, so like uh, interpersonal, dynamics pretty quickly when you've been isolated with people for that long. Um, and then, yeah, I'll talk about the, the Greenland work. So no, I didn't go to, um, to Greenland to do that work. And it's because the samples, the material that we were looking at had been collected over 50 years ago. And um, it's this funny story that also relates into Antarctica and the Cold War um, that the U.S. military was really interested in figuring out how to operate near the poles. And in Greenland in the Arctic, the military was particularly interested because that was the shortest pathway between the United States and the USSR for an intercontinental ballistic missile. So they were worried about war breaking out in the high Arctic. And the U.S., um, through NATO and its the partnership of NATO um, with Denmark, they set up this base in Northwest Greenland called Thule. And they set that base up as a uh, refueling station for B-52 bombers, as well as um, a radar station. And that's part of that project. They started thinking about, uh, you know, what could, what else could we do in Greenland? Um, and the military did this and it's truly insane what they were trying to do is they wanted to figure out if they could hide nuclear weapons inside of the Greenland ice sheet. And they were going to build um, a series of tunnels um, where they could move around warheads um, to hide them from the Soviet Union. And where the science comes into this is fascinating because they needed the military needed to understand how ice behaves, just its physical properties. And so that gave birth to ice core science, because when you collect ice cores, you drill down through the ice and um, you're studying the properties of it, how it um, flows under its own weight and its different physical properties. And the collection of the very first deep ice core that really jump-started the whole field of climate science was collected uh, at this place called Camp Century. And so how do I, <laughs> it's, how do I enter this part of the uh, the story is pretty weird because they drilled this ice core. 
they went through a kilometer, almost a kilometer and a half of ice, and they made it all the way to the bottom of the ice sheet and collected about 12 feet of soil. And that soil um, was never fully investigated. It wasn't the main focus of the ice core scientists. They were first interested in understanding the, you know, kilometer and a half of ice above it. And so the soil was never really studied. And then through just sort of a series of unfortunate events, it ended up being lost in a freezer in Copenhagen for the last 30 years. And when scientists in Copenhagen were moving um, stuff around in their ice core freezer, they found these samples and they realized it was the material from the very first ice core at Camp Century. And so that's how I got involved. I was asked to work on this project with um, my postdoctoral advisor at University of Vermont and a bunch of other scientists around the U.S. and uh, Europe. And we started working on this, on this core, and um, it was really exciting, um, also a little bit terrifying, <laughs> because we found remnants of ancient tundra from the last time that part of Greenland was melted away, and um, it was warmer than it, than it is now. Um, so that was exciting that we had found these fossil freeze-dried plants, but kind of scary because we were realizing, you know, that that ice sheet is not a permanent feature on, on, the, on Earth's surface. It, it can melt away under slightly different climate states. That must, have been a, that must have been an absolute um, gold mine when you found those core samples. Yeah, it, it, everything that we do on that project, and we've only looked at um, about uh, like 10 inches of this soil, and we have 12 feet left. And in just that small amount of sediment, we are learning things about what was alive, um, in Greenland at that time, the last time that the ice melted away, um, analyzing the different minerals and figuring out how the ice sheet has been flowing through time and eroding the landscape. Um, and so it is absolutely a gold mine. And I just can't believe that no one had ever really looked at it. <laughs> hey, Andrew, there's a robust debate within the scientific community over the potential of what has been termed a methane, a methane time bomb in the Arctic, specifically around the East Siberian Arctic Shelf. I think I've read pretty much every paper written by Drs. Shakova, Similitov and Peter Wadhams, and I'd like to know what your take is on the, this aspect of the threat to the climate through methane. Right, yeah, so that, you know, it it's hard to know what could happen um, because part of the issue with climate change is that it's not a linear problem, right? It's not necessarily um, a easily predictable set of changes that occur. So with methane release in the far north um, in Siberia, um, as well as like the north slope of Alaska, that, you know, that could cause a basically a burp of methane to go up into the atmosphere very quickly. Um, and that could cause additional warming. Um, but then there, you know, those changes in the Arctic are, 
are really complex. So what happens to the landscape after it warms up could actually have some sort of uh, feedback loop to it or, um, or kind of like a, a snowball effect, or it could cause things to be less extreme. So what I mean by that is if you melt away the permafrost and what was formerly tundra now starts to become a forest, well, you have a totally different ecosystem now, and it's a different type of um, carbon sink. Um, and so it's kind of difficult for scientists to predict exactly what's going to happen um, as the permafrost in the far north changes. Um, but yeah, it is certainly a concern what, what will happen to that methane and if it's suddenly released, how it could warm the atmosphere. Yeah, that's the trouble when you conduct an experiment that's never been conducted before. You're really <laughs> opening yourself up to all sorts of um, uh, outcomes. There's just one more point I'd like to make about the methane. Uh, yesterday mm -hmm. I went to NOAA's Global Measurement Laboratory and um, got the methane statistics for the last two years. Um, in January 2020, it was 18, uh, 1,873 parts per billion. And in, in, in January 21, it was 1,893. So it's gone up 1% in a year. But the point I want to bring up about that is that because methane, methane is so short-lived, a lot of the previous methane will have oxidized to carbon dioxide. So what I'm, what I'm thinking is statistically it looks like it's gone up 1%, but because of that short longevity, it's obviously gone up a lot more. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So, the, yeah, the, uh, the resonance time of methane in the atmosphere is a lot shorter than carbon dioxide. It's on the scale of decades uh, for methane compared to millennia for um, carbon dioxide. And so that is, uh, in, you know, a scary thing because methane is also a more um, uh, effective warmer. It, it creates more uh, or releases more infrared heat when uh, as a greenhouse effect than carbon dioxide does. So it actually causes more warming by releasing it. Um, and I, th I mean, I guess, I'm not sure if I'm totally addressing your question, but in terms of the rate of it going up so quickly, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know the numbers on this, but what is natural versus? Uh, oh, sorry, I was getting some interference there. I wasn't sure if you're trying to to ask a question. You go, guy, please. Sure. A paper by James Hansen and colleagues, in fact, 14 of Hansen's colleagues, published in Earth System Dynamics in July of 2017, finds that Earth is at least one and a quarter degrees above the 1880 to 1920 baseline. So that's a little bit of shifting the baseline, ignores probably at least 0.3 degrees Celsius. According to the Advisory Group on Greenhouse Gases from their October 1990 report, this is the precursor to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, one degree C above the 1750 baseline marked the beginning of the end regarding loss of habitat for humans. 
And now we're, well, four years ago, we were at 1.55 or so above the 1750 baseline. And yet I received daily reminders that 2C remains some sort of target. This approach ignores a precautionary principle and also common sense. Can you comment? What's going on here? Well, yeah, this is <laughs> where science meets public policy and international politics, and it, that's where it gets extremely comp more complicated uh, when you introduce humans and how they behave <laughs> into the equation here. Right, so, you know, these numbers that that the scientific community and the IPCC have picked out as targets, um, you know, they it is sad that it seems to be, you know, everything will change so much at these uh, small temperature changes and that this benchmark is changing. Um, and I guess what I can comment on it uh, is more from an ice sheet and sea level perspective is that those numbers are important to understand because if you cross a threshold for melting large parts of Antarctica or Greenland, then the consequences, which is rapid sea level rise um, over decades and centuries, are you know permanent. Um, that water is not going back anywhere. Uh, it's not going to be refrozen at the poles, and it shifts all the coastlines. Um, and so, you know, with these benchmark targets um, for warming, it's really important as from the scientific perspective to understand just how sensitive ice sheets are under those different scenarios. So um, a lot of modeling studies that try to figure out how the ice sheets may melt in the future use those different benchmarks to see what might happen um, under those warming scenarios. And we really, we really do not want to keep dialing it up. You know, we, <laughs> that is not a good, not a good uh, future that, that we, we really want to avoid it, is what I'm trying to say. So. Right. Well, I couldn't agree more with that. The, the paper in question by Hansen and colleagues titled Young People's Burden, Requirement of Negative CO2 Emissions. As I understand the situation, there is no known way to create and maintain negative CO2 emissions, yet 15 scientists involved in this paper expect exactly that. Not from themselves, mind you, but from their children and grandchildren. Now... As awkward as it is to point it out, you are young enough to be in the category of child or grandchild for many of the authors <laughs> on that paper. Would you care to comment on that aspect, the idea of negative emissions and what kind of expectation that is? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is, that's the, I think one of the most tragic things about climate change is that it's a burden and a debt that is being going to be uh, put onto young people and many people who aren't alive yet <laughs> to have to deal with it, whether that means adapting to the changes or trying to mitigate or possibly lessen the, uh, the impact from climate change. So with negative carbon emissions, I mean, it, I, I don't want to be too much of a fatalist, but, they, you know, maybe the technology exists to do that right now by sequestering carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it in uh, deep underground aquifer, aquifers um, or, 
you know, stored in volcanic rock, like they're trying to do in Iceland right now. But the scale at which we have to do that is incredible. Um, and that's also trying to keep into mind how do we continue to build things or operate an economy that is really carbon intensive and will remain carbon intensive even if we even if we um, you know shift all of our cars to electric vehicles and electrify so much of our society there's still going to be carbon emissions um, from you know different industrial processes and agriculture um, and you know many things that humans do so you know that may be the scientific reality is that in order to avoid the worst consequences of climate warming, we need to draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But um, feasibly, how, how do we do that? Um, and that, that seems, I mean, I, I'm not on that side of the uh, climate science world is that um, mitigation side. But from the way I look at it, it's like this numbers game of how, how, how can we reduce our carbon emissions as well as, you know, put it back into the ground and out of the atmosphere is is really a, a really well this is a huge question. issue that i had with the ipcc and their con concentrate representative concentration pathways where in their rcps they have factored in carbon capture and storage at scale that doesn't exist at, at scale it's fantasy technology it's a spectacularly poor use of the uh, precautionary principle Hey, look, I'd like to get back up to the Arctic again for a second. Um, as the Arctic cryosphere has been melting, we've seen the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation slowing down. And as a result of that, we're seeing the jet streams meandering in the Northern Hemisphere. As the melt takes place in the Antarctic, are we going to see changes to our weather patterns where I live, down on the Southern Ocean in New Zealand? Yeah, so, you know, um, it's not as much related to the melting of the ice, but climate change in the southern hemisphere is already having some changes to, um, to your main weather patterns. So down in the southern hemisphere, uh, especially in New Zealand and Australia, your weather patterns are controlled by the position of the southern westerlies those western winds that are always whipping around um, into New Zealand and when you get those really terrible winter storms. <laughs> um, um, or if you're trying to sail across to Stewart Island, enduring some of that, that wind. But um, so part of what's been going on with climate change already, um, the atmospheric changes, is that it is causing the position of the southern westerlies to, get, to go closer to Antarctica. Um, when it's not uh, not as warm, that that westerly wind belt is positioned further to the north um, than it is to Antarctica, and that has you know changes in the amount of moisture, the severity of storms that will uh, hit parts of Antarctica, um, and it also changes how much heat is being transported to Antarctica and can cause uh, widespread melting events. Um, in places like the Antarctic Peninsula, which is south of South America. And that can cause um, really rapid melting of ice shelves, which hold in ice from the interior of the ice sheets. 
and can uh, cause accelerated ice loss and uh, contribution to sea level rise. So in terms of, you know, an analog for changing the uh, ocean circulation and impacting um, weather patterns around Australia and New Zealand and the rest of the southern hemisphere, it's a little bit different, but climate change is already affecting that. You mentioned nonlinearity a while ago, and Kevin and I have been pounding away at this issue for years now to, minimal, to have minimal impact. It's one of those concepts that's pretty difficult to grok. So can you tell our listeners, what does that mean, nonlinearity in the climate system? What are the consequences? Maybe give an example or two. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess, so what's difficult about nonlinearity, um, I think, for humans is that uh, changes can happen so quickly that we don't, that it's hard for us to conceive that it's happening. And this isn't a climate change example, but I think I think about COVID with nonlinearity and exponential growth of a disease or, or transfer of a disease, right? Two weeks is all it took to explode the COVID cases in the United States um, in the spring of 2020. And that's an example of something that's nonlinear because it was an exponential growth. So now if we can, so shifting back to climate science with nonlinearity, it's when uh, gradual changes suddenly trigger a massive change. And this can happen um, in places like the Antarctic Peninsula where you could have um, sustained melting of an ice shelf, which is a floating glacier that holds ice in from the continent. And if you melt it for too long, that ice shelf begins to disintegrate and is no longer able to hold all the ice from the interior in. And then you end up actually accelerating how much ice is um, jettisoned out into the ocean. And that's an example of something that's nonlinear. It's a gradual change at first, but after a while, some threshold is passed, and then you have a massive amount of change in a very short amount of time. And so that's an example um, that I can think of that's from Antarctica. Uh, you know, and other changes, like in the Arctic, um, what we were talking about with changes to permafrost, those can also have nonlinear changes associated with them, where you know, if you start to melt away permafrost, frozen soil, and then suddenly release a bunch of methane into the atmosphere, that's going to cause a spike in additional climate warming, um, even though, you know, the initial change was slow and gradual, it results in a rapid change later on. So it, climate science is full of these nonlinear um, consequences to um, what seem like small changes at the beginning. When, whenever I think about nonlinearity, I'm always drawn to Albert Bartlett's, uh, the mathematician's presentation on YouTube. Uh, and there's the great takeout line from him, quote, the greatest shortcoming of the human race is its inability to truly understand the, the exponential function. And I think it's only when you delve into the math of it where you get to see how quickly uh, things can change. Now, this is a question that might it might be me asking you that your colleagues might have shared with you, but as the as the um, water in the oceans near the equators is warming up, are you seeing a migration of tropical 
marine species from the equatorial regions going further and further down into the Antarctic, sorry? That's a, that is a good question, and I don't think I really know an answer to it. Um, you know, I know that uh, warming of the tropical parts of the ocean can actually be pretty devastating for marine life because it's too hot for some marine life to survive in those areas. Um, I'm thinking of places uh, kind of off the coast of Mexico where there's this sort of permit. It's called the blob. That's what it's been called because it's this zone of really high anomalously warm ocean temperatures that's been persistent for the last several years, regardless of whether or not there's an El Nino event. And El Nino is really, um, you know, a change in uh, ocean temperatures versus east and west Pacific. But those changes in ocean surface temperatures can um, totally have cascading effects on the ecosystems there. As for are there shifts in what is, you know, what was formerly tropical animals or tropical marine life towards um, more temperate or polar latitudes, I actually don't, I don't know the answer to that. The reason I ask, ask that question is that with two of the previous guests we've had on the show, is, one is Jim Messer, who's a, an Arctic oceanographer, and he had a lot of information on that. And we also interviewed Professor Corey Bradshaw from Flinders University in Australia, and uh, that was about a paper that he published about extinction cascades. And part of that paper was um, some species migrating into other regions that they weren't previously and then taking over those regions because there were species that were vulnerable to them. So that's sort of where my interest in, in that field um, mm. uh, comes from. Guy, have you got yeah, something I'm you'd like to add? Yeah, I want to return to this idea of nonlinearity, specifically with respect to a story that appeared in the New York Times yesterday, based on a paper that was published yesterday in Nature Climate Change. The paper, written by 70 authors, <laughs> indicates that more than one-third of the heat deaths over the course of the last couple of decades has been driven in part by climate change. So now we're talking about people dying. It's not just about a slight increase in temperature. It's not about loss of habitat for a fish most people have never heard of or bacteria that nobody has ever heard of. Now we're talking about people dying. I'm wondering what you think the outcome will be. Are, are educated people more likely to mm, become at least more aware and maybe spread the word, take some actions, do, do something. This is a classic case of nonlinearity playing out with human deaths as a consequence of increased global average temperature. Do you think it'll, do you think it's gonna go anywhere? Do you think people learn anything? Uh, I'm pretty much beyond that myself. I wish, you know, I wish people would learn, you know, figure out <laughs> or just identify that there's clearly a problem that we can do things to address. Um, and I think, you know, I haven't read this paper that you, that you're talking about, about um, the role of climate change and uh, heat wave deaths, but I mean, it makes sense. And it's where we have that intersection between society and our infrastructure, which is built with 
expectations of what climate conditions are going to be like for that part of the world and how people survive in them. And so with climate change and the warming side of it, you know, I can think of places like in Seattle, for example, people don't have air conditioning units built into their houses in Seattle because it didn't used to ever get that hot in the summer. And then I remember uh, it was either a year or two ago, they were having sustained heat waves of 90 to 100 degrees. And rich, well-off people are able to adapt to that more easily because they can go out and buy air conditioning units or buy houses that have central ventilation and central air conditioning. But the people who are lowest on the um, economic ladder are going to be the most adversely affected by that, um, by those, you know, increasingly more frequent heat waves. And then I, I think like another really good example of that uh, collision of climate change, society, and infrastructure is what just happened in Texas in March when, or I guess maybe late February when they had that really um, terrible winter storm where people froze to death um, in South Texas from a winter storm and their energy infrastructure could not handle that change. Um, and that's an example of a, you know, a weather event producing an extreme consequence on um, a large population of people. Um, and then after the fact, is anything in Texas going to change in their politics or their leadership to, you know, make a more resilient energy infrastructure so that those sorts of problems don't prop up again in the future? And I don't know if I have a lot of <laughs> hope for that, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, that in my mind is, you know, hopefully something that will happen um, in the next few years as we actually get renewed push to update infrastructure, which I think really has a large role in mitigating the effects of climate change on large parts of our population. But that, I don't know, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, infrastructure is a huge issue for sure. I have a friend who's a medical doctor in Eastern Canada. She's from Germany and her daughter, her father died in a German hospital because there's no need for air conditioning in Germany. There never has been. And he died from heat stress while waiting for uh, another issue to be dealt with. And so she refers to that situation as the first person she knew personally to die as a result of abrupt climate change. It seems to me that the infrastructure changes required at this point must be just absolutely overwhelming. You know, all of Western Europe has had this infrastructure basically since World War II, and so has the United States, with relatively little change. Do, to, to beg the question, do we have world enough and time to make the kinds of changes that need to be made? You know, I don't know if we have the time, but we have to. <laughs> it's, I mean, if we continue to live um, and design infrastructure in our society like we have been in, since World War II, then we're definitely not going to have time. You know, like in the U.S., post-World War II infrastructure is basically focused around cars and um, uh, fossil fuel energy. 
and we can't do that anymore. We have we have to change. So I guess I I am heartened to see that electric vehicles are really becoming popular. Um, they don't, you know, it's that is changing pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do we do we have time? We just need to do it. <laughs> Other otherwise, that question is going to answer itself, and we're going to have sea level that's 20 feet higher, and you know, unsustainably warm temperatures in a couple hundred years. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> Can we sail back down to the Antarctic again for a moment? Um, and I'd like to address the issue of methane clathrates. Have you had any experience with clathrate discharges in the Antarctic? Yeah, um, a little bit. More, more just from learning about them in school. But um, you know, so clathrates are basically um, molecules of methane that are locked in an ice crystal. And the worry with clathrates is that if you destabilize that uh, the temperatures on that part of the ocean floor, um, or uh, you know, if there were some large event that caused them to burp out of the ocean, that that could add to methane in the atmosphere. I don't think in Antarctica the issue of clathrate destabilization is is as um, extreme as the Arctic um, for a variety of reasons. Um, because the Antarctic is so much colder than the Arctic, and the Arctic is warming much more quickly than Antarctica right now. Um, but it is something that we know about, that these methane deposits exist out on the seafloor locked in ice crystals. Um, but I, I think the methane issue is, is probably of more concern in the Arctic. Yeah, well, the, the issue in the ESAS and the East Siberian Arctic Shelf is that the water is so shallow and uh, clathrates are held stable by a combination of pressure and um, cold, so they're more vulnerable with just minor changes. I, I even seen one where one um, paper where it said that when there were serious big storms in that region, the, the, because the waves were so high and the troughs so low, that the pressure differential on some of the clathrates changed enough for them to be destabilised. So it actually said that a storm could destabilize it. That freaked me out when I read that. Yeah, that, that, that would be, that is freaky. And I mean, uh, another consequence there of a, of a, or unintended consequence of climate change is with those storms is that, um, you know, in the past, maybe the sea ice that used to cover those parts of the ocean more throughout the year would prevent that damage happening on the seafloor but then if you remove that sea ice then it's much easier to overturn the ocean water and churn it up and then destabilize class rates um so you know another example of a non-linear uh climate impact <laughs> speaking of non-linearity i believe it was in august 2017 that the president of finland who has an unpronounceable name for me at least with President Trump in the Oval Office. And one of the things he said with respect to climate change was, quote, if we lose the Arctic, we lose the globe. Can you tell us what he's talking about? What does that mean, at least from your perspective? Uh, they were talking about Arctic ice at the time. And does, does he know about habitat? 
And is he making a comment about habitat? Well, he may he may mean multiple things, um, and he may mean yeah, loss of habitat, so loss of sea ice, which would affect uh, polar bear populations. Um, you know that that could be what he's alluding to with population, but I think there may actually be a bigger loss, and it it ties into sort of the centuries-long pursuit of the Northwest Passage and the Arctic. And if the Arctic becomes um, warmer and there is more easy access out into the ocean basins in the Arctic for oil drilling um, and mineral resources, I think that may be what he is talking about because if you start drilling for oil in the Arctic, then you know, you're adding to the climate warming problem even more. Um, and so maybe that's what he is referring to. Um, and I don't think that, um, the, that many people appreciate how delicate um, the political situation might, it is in, in the Arctic. Um, and as there's less ice there and there's more global trade being funneled through um, the Northwest Passage um, as well as around the north coast of Russia. Um, it's going to change um, the political dynamics of that part of the world. And it could, you know, it could be a place for conflict in the future. And that could be what another way that the Finnish president is about losing the world is, you know, a new, a new battleground um, figuratively or maybe literally. Um, so maybe that's what he's referring to. I, d I don't know. <laughs> Hard to get inside the Finnish prime minister's head, but. Right. My much less four years later. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the rate of environmental change in the wake of an ice-free Arctic ocean would be extreme to say the least, probably a faster rate of change than the planet has experienced with our species on it. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that might mean worldwide? So we lose the floating ice in the Arctic. That doesn't make much difference in terms of sea level rise, obviously, but the lack of albedo and therefore the presence of a blue ocean that is soaking up the heat has got to have some profound impacts. Yep, absolutely because that um, the albedo effect from, uh, from that ice is one way that the Earth keeps itself kind of cool. So about 30% of solar radiation is actually reflected back out into outer space from sea ice and um, ice sheets in the Arctic as well as in, in Antarctica. And so if you begin to reduce um, that albedo, then we're taking in more solar radiation and it's going to cause additional heating in the Arctic. And, you know, there's an active debate right now um, about whether or not the presence of open ocean in the Arctic um, is actually affecting northern hemisphere uh, weather patterns. I, I, don't, I don't think this, um, you know, this scientific question has been fully answered yet. But there are, from my understanding, two kind of perspectives on it is that when you have 
um, more open Arctic Ocean and less sea ice, um, the heat that is absorbed in the Arctic Ocean and then released back into the atmosphere without that sea ice cover um, can change weather patterns that changes um, how uh, um, tight or wavy the um, northern jet stream is. Um, and then that obviously changes um, storm patterns in more temperate regions of uh, the northern hemisphere. But there is, I, the science is not settled on whether or not that actually is happening. I know earlier this year that there have been some papers that have come out um, questioning whether or not that is, that is occurring. Um, but yeah, these changes in the Arctic um, and the rapid, the rapidness of them um, really will have impacts on us. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to be manifested most in the changes to the carbon cycle in the high Arctic, whether you have permafrost that's now turning into uh, really tall um, evergreen forests, um, how different wetlands in the high Arctic are changing, as well as if you start melting away large portions of the Greenland ice sheet, then um, you're changing sea level and also affecting um, what is able to grow on Greenland, whether that's a, a tundra environment or, or possibly far in the future, maybe a forest. Um, and so those changes, they seem far away, but they have cascading effects to us. I read, read one report from Scripps uh, Institution of Oceanography and they equated a blue ocean event, so when we have less than a million square kilometres of sea ice in the Arctic, they said that would be the loss of the albedo to that point would be the equivalent of 25 years emissions. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that that's exactly <laughs> my response when I read that report from Scripps. Um, we'll be winding the show up shortly, but what I will do is I'll send that to you afterwards in, a, in an email so you can uh, have a look at it. Yeah, great. Yeah, you guys, I've really enjoyed hearing all the different studies that you guys have been reading. Um, yeah, it's good good to talk about this stuff. So thanks for that. Yeah, and, and thank you again for joining us, Dr. Christ. And I would really like to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Dr. Ye Tao at the Roland Center, I'm sorry, the Roland Institute at Harvard. And he is a very multi-talented engineer who has become incredibly interested in abrupt climate change and how we might deal with it. So I look forward to a continued conversation with you off the air. Thanks okay. again for joining us. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Andrew. And thanks to our listeners today as well as Zephra Zen for our theme music. For exactly one more episode, you can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern. Our next and final episode is set, scheduled to air on July the 6th, 2021 in the United States. That's 8 a.m. Wednesday the 7th of July here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It'll be a call and celebratory show, so please listen and give us a call. If you missed the broadcast, you can find shows at the archives at PRN, the Podbean, at Stitcher, and feel free to uh, rate us on iTunes. Also, continue to follow the Nature Bats Blast, Nature Bats Last Blog, Guy McPhee.
kevinfearson.com for further updates and interviews and speaking tours. You can keep up with my work at kevinhester.life. Thanks very much. Remember, until next time, the dominant culture has been very clever, but in the end, nature bats last. Yeah.